Fast Talk. Street Talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk. Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. The home of common sense. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic. What do you mean, welcome back? Tell you just started. Sorry, I'll start again. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. It's Thursday. Uh, it's a beautiful day out there. Lovely, lovely weather. Uh, fantastic uh, promotional activities going on throughout the course of this show, because here's what we're going to be promoting. We're going to be promoting wellness. We're going to be promoting good feelings. We're going to be promoting optimism. And we're going to be promoting all the things that people don't think Britain is anymore because I'm sick to death of actually listening to myself saying Britain is absolutely busted, Britain is absolutely broke, Britain is no more. Because I think it's time to start the rescue effort, isn't it? It's time to start saying, can we make Britain better? You know, people make fun of Donald Trump, uh, make America great again was his slogan. And in fact, you'd have to say that since Donald Trump departed the White House, uh, the one thing it hasn't been is great. In fact, Joe Biden has driven it further into the sea, it would seem to me. Um, But despite the fact that we have a government that doesn't appear to be in control uh, of its own kind of future, despite the fact that we have an opposition which doesn't really promise much better, despite the fact that we have crumbling administrations, the fact that we have crumbling sort of infrastructure, the trains don't really work, the border force certainly doesn't work, um, we've got problems with the police, We've got problems with the NHS. We've got problems with the banking sector. You know, despite all of that, we as Britons still get up every morning, put a smile on our faces and go to work. Well, most of us do anyway. Now, I'm going to speak to Isabel Oakshot this morning, Talk TV's international editor. I was with her last night uh, on the talk. And, you know, there's a lot to be miserable about. But in a funny sort of way, it's sort of what makes us British, isn't it? You know, lots of people are very excited about the Lionesses getting through to the final of the World Cup down in Australia. And I take my hat off to them. I think it's a brilliant achievement. And, of course, there will be many people supporting them. Uh, it's going to be live on TalkSport, I believe, on Sunday. Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little bit later on. But let's just talk about the pride, the pride of Britain. Let's talk about what it is that makes Britain great and why we can't get back to that situation where we do not necessarily rule the waves, but at least have some kind of idea of which way the waves are going, for heaven's sake. 0344 499 1000. There's a British Museum worker who's been sacked over nicking a load of stuff, which I think is sort of quintessentially British. Um, we've got NATO suggesting that the Ukraine should surrender uh, in order to secure membership of NATO. They might have to give up a bit of their country. That's an interesting one. We'll talk to uh, Isabel about that. And also, let's face it, the migrant problem isn't going away anytime soon. So instead of railing against it, what should we do? I mean, we know what should be done. We know how to stop it. The government isn't going to stop it. So maybe we should just stop being so worked up about it and find another way. And if you're waiting for your A-level results this morning, I'm a father waiting to hear from my son uh, who's supposedly getting his this morning. He told me last night he was waking up especially early uh, in order to find out what he'd done and how well he had done to see whether he'd go to university. Uh, he was going to get up at 8. I haven't heard from him yet, so I presume he's still in bed. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let us get it on. Um... So, I'm sorry to tell you that we've got some breaking news for you, just to kick uh, the uh, the show off. Michael Parkinson uh, has died. 
uh, one of the most famous interviewers probably of all time. Uh, if you're not old enough to remember him, uh, you should probably look him up. But he was one of the quintessential kind of parts of what used to make the BBC brilliant uh, before it all went horribly wrong. Uh, he died at the age of 88. We'll have a tribute to him uh, coming up a little bit later in the show. Um, but to uh, to apologise for, for putting that sort of dampener rather on the start of the show, Isabel Oakshot is here. Isabel, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. What on earth has happened to you? Why have you gone all positive? What's going on here? <laughs> well, do you know, every now and again I like to play little tricks on myself, you know, because I think there is a certain kind of negativity that, that abounds uh, abroad and, and people can get a bit carried away with it and they can wake up every morning and feel a bit overwhelmed by it. So I think sometimes you have to tell people there's still a lot of great things about Britain. There's still an awful lot of things to look forward to. Um, you know, we are a fantastic nation. We are a very buoyant people. You know, don't forget we've been conquered many times and yet we're still here i think sometimes it's worth remembering that well i agree with you and i don't want to be that person that's always moaning it mm. definitely makes you feel like you're getting old when you just see the negativity mm. in everything exactly. and i'm i'm sitting out here now i'm looking over the thames the houses of parliament have got the sun on them it looks magnificent you know you go around central london tourism is booming as it will be up and down the country in the Lake District and so many of our other beauty spots. I've spent much of August on the Isle of Wight and when the sun shines, it's absolutely glorious. Yes. And you think, why on earth would anyone bother going through the airport misery to actually go abroad? Mm. I mean, the answer is because it's not always absolutely <laughs> glorious. But neither is it, by the way, in France. You know, plenty of people have had slightly disappointing holidays in uh, France this year where the weather's been equally pretty rubbish. Mm. So, yeah, there's lots to be cheerful about. Um, I'm not sure it's the core offer of your programme. Um, but, you know, for a, for a novelty, maybe we can do reasons to be cheerful. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, is that we forget how great a country we have here. I mean, it's very beautiful, as you say, and there are there are, there are times when you, you kind of wake up. Sometimes if I'm travelling or I'm finding myself in a hotel up in Scotland or something like that, and you wake up and you open the curtains, and you just go, wow, this is actually a stunning country. It's a beautiful place. And yes, we've got so many problems that, you know, you can't even begin to shake a stick at them. But I think it's it, we are a very resilient people as well. You know, I mean, if you were French you would not be having this conversation because somebody would remind you that basically you folded uh, to the Nazis when they walked into Paris. You know, you would be told that, they, you know, what the French are famous for is giving up, waving a white flag as soon as anybody comes anywhere near them. You know, we're not, that's not us. That's not what we do. No, we do, we do have a really proud history. But the question is, can we go on to at least as good or better things or are we in some kind of terminal decline? Mm. Um, and I've been thinking about the A-level and exam results today, and I, I am actually slightly worried about the fact that your son, having said he was going to get out of bed at eight for his <laughs> result, has not been in touch. This sounds all too familiar. Yeah. Well, the, know, well the, Trump, the, thing, the thing that worries me more, because you, no matter how um, resilient we all are, you still feel a pang of, of sort of responsibility for your children, and I just don't want him to be disappointed. Yeah. And my yeah. worry is that he's woken up at eight o'clock, he hasn't got what he wanted, and he doesn't want to tell me. That's exactly what I was worrying about. Now, knowing teenage lads as I do, it's much more likely that he simply can't be bothered to get up and have a look at the results. So let's go with that optimistic. I'm going with that. I mean, we've got three hours to do the show. I'm hoping before the show ends, we'll find an answer. Um, yeah, but what, what I would say, just thinking about the exam results today and people who have or haven't got the results they were hoping for, um, I think that if we are going to go on to become a better nation, mm. a, a, 
greater nation than we are. Um, it's time to have a fundamental rethink uh, about the way children are educated. I think that the the kind of basics, although ministers have tinkered around the edges with exams over the last couple of decades, what we've never done is almost sort of looked at it in the rounds and said, is what we are teaching children equipping them for life in future? Yeah. So I think, you know, instead of um, focusing on history of our A-levels, you know, we need to be teaching about enterprise. We need to be teaching about resilience. We need to be teaching about money management. We need mm. to be teaching about economics, about the way the property market works. We need to be teaching about public speaking, presentation, confidence, all of those things. And they are very much add-ons um, to the curriculum. They're seen as extracurricular, a kind of nice to have. Yeah. And in a sense, it should be the other way around. You know, of course, um, academia should be should be prized for in and of itself and children of course they need to understand fundamental mathematics and english and so on but i don't think that our schools are doing a good enough job of teaching life skills mm. because in the end you know you can have as many a stars as you want but if you can't address a room if you can't look people in the eye uh, if you don't understand what money is then you're not going to actually build an amazing career. No. And I think what we both know, which is sometimes unspoken and, and, and which is rarely discussed, is that the reason why kids are coming out of schools woefully unprepared for life is that they're being taught by people who are woefully unprepared for life. We're being taught now by people in state schools uh, who don't like the fact that, you know, um, they might have to work a bit harder to get where they want to go, who all think that they're entitled to have an awful lot of money, who think that they can go on strike in order to be paid more money uh, for a job which is meant to be a kind of a public service job. You know, and they're so left-wing now, the teachers of this country, um, that they've kind of lost sight of what they're actually supposed to be doing. I mean, on my son's school, I remember being quite shocked. The first time I went into my son's secondary school a few years ago, um, the only thing I noticed was that on every single corridor there was a notice board uh, most of which were mostly empty, apart from one poster which was on the notice board for Stonewall. And that was it, you know. And I'm walking around going, is that all they've got? Is that everything that they want to teach my children uh, is all about, you know, uh, the recognition of various different minority groups and Stonewall has to be part of everything. I think it's shocking. Oh, no, it is completely shocking. And the grip that the left has on the education establishment isn't, unfortunately, just limited to state schools. Mm. I say unfortunately because, you know, with most problems, you like to think that if, if push comes to shove, you can buy your way out of the problem, um, as many people are being forced to do with an inadequate failing NHS. You know, they're using their savings to buy their way out of the failing system. Um, unfortunately, that left wingery um, is also absolutely pervasive in the independent sector. Um, and and the, the difference between the best schools and the worst is still absolutely shocking. Um, and that shouldn't be the case. I don't know really any parents who, with children in private schools, who relish paying the eye-watering fees to send their children to private schools. I think the vast majority would love to be able to stick with state schools. State schools should be able to do a fantastic job, but they're not. And when teachers strike... I think that's an appalling example mm. set to pupils. Well, you don't like your paying conditions, so you're just going to down tools, yeah. are you? Or are right. you going to find a constructive way to make your paying conditions better or change the job in a way that suits you? Or, hey, maybe even get a different job because fundamentally this is what you signed yeah. up for. 
And we've been talking about, you know, teenage boys. And I know for a fact, I mean, apart from the fact that COVID was a kind of completely ridiculous situation for most kids who didn't go to school and who then lost the appetite for school and basically regarded school as a joke. I mean, I know that from just my own personal experience because my kids were just like, well, you know, if they're not going to bother asking me to come in, then maybe I won't bother going in. And then once they did start going back, uh, the teachers started going on strike. And I know, for, again, for a fact that one of my kids and, and, and all their friends were like, well, they don't, they don't care about school, so why should we? And it's a really bad sort of right. message, and, isn't it? Yeah, and the legacy of that absolutely lives on. And now our Talk TV colleague, Julia Hartley Brewer, did an excellent, typically robust Hartley Brewer-style interview this morning yeah. with the Education Secretary, Gillian Keegan. Uh, Julia repeatedly challenged the Education Secretary um, essentially to admit that the long-term closure of schools during the pandemic was a disaster and i'm afraid to say that miss keegan repeatedly refused to do so it was the same old lily-livered pathetic you know wishy-washy political response because she didn't want a headline that said closing schools was a mistake Mm. well to provide it for her it was a catastrophe Why not just admit it? You know, in the same interview, she basically admitted that loads of children have still not returned to school. How can she look herself in the eye as education secretary and accept that just as a kind of ongoing Mm. situation? Why isn't she making it her business every waking hour of the day to get every single child back into education? How can we accept? that there are large numbers of children who never return to school. That's on her, that's on this government. and that is absolutely right. And also, I think the thing that many parents, and I perhaps would count myself as one of them, discovered during COVID was that when you saw what they were being taught, when they were asked to do homework finally, not in the first sort of semester of when they were uh, sent home to do nothing. My, my kids were given no homework at all. But when they were finally given some homework, you were kind of going, is this really what they're teaching them? This is incredibly yeah. awful. Yeah, it is. I mean, yes, absolutely. I mean, I've got uh, children at various different schools and the girls are at an outstanding school uh, where I'm endlessly impressed by what they're being taught and what they're learning. Um, my son, on the other hand, teenager, has taken the decision to leave um, after he's just done his GCSEs and is going to study something practical. He spent the summer so far uh, working as a builder's apprentice. And he's absolutely loved it. I've loved it because I know now um, that in future I may not have to pay so much when I need stuff done in the house. But I think we've got to stop being snobby uh, about these types of practical jobs. You know, start at the bottom, work your way up. No one, um, I I imagine that he hopes he's not just going to be a painter and decorator forever, although that's a very um, good and solid job. But if you start learning at the bottom, work your way up, you can achieve really great things by slightly different routes. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, well, this is the thing. I mean, Tom Skinner, who's been sitting here with me, um, was basically expelled from school. He managed to get two GCSEs, he told me. Uh, and he's now running several businesses and he's a very successful guy. Um, but we're going to break for a moment because we have to do so. Isabel Oakshot's with us. Uh, the breaking news as well that Sir Michael Parkinson has passed away uh, at the age of 88. Probably one of the more familiar faces of the BBC when the BBC was actually worth watching 
Michael Parkinson, one of the great interviewers of all time, um, had a big, big show on the BBC, which ran from 1971 to 1982. He basically interviewed everybody. Muhammad Ali, uh, many of you might remember the Meg Ryan interview, uh, the, uh, the one that he did, of course, with Rod Hull and Emu. I mean, just everyone who was anyone had to go through the Michael Parkinson studio, sit in a chair and talk to him. And it was sometimes incredibly um, rip, uh, you know, gripping just to watch his technique. A fantastic individual, a proper journalist, by the way, as well. Started off as a newspaper man up in Yorkshire. I knew some people who had sort of grown up with him. Uh, a tremendous uh, British figure. Uh, we'll talk more about him. Ali Ross from The Sun will be here to give us an appreciation. But coming up, more from Isabel Oakshot. Uh, they basically uh, locked up, or are hoping to lock up, four people smugglers charged with manslaughter after those six migrants died uh, earlier uh, in the week and of course uh, what we're going to be saying to you uh, is that two of them are from Iraq and two of them from Sudan so it's all the lefties who say but they're all lovely people no they're not there's at least four of them who are people smugglers and scumbags this is Talk TV online on DAB plus talk radio and talk TV welcome back to the independent Republican Mike Graham right here on talk TV I can tell you uh, with some pride actually um, that my son has now been in touch and he's done all right. He's going to university. So I'm actually feeling quite um, emotional about that. Because, you know, there were times when people said, you know, he's not going to make it. He's not going to make much of his life. You know, some of his teachers when he was at infant school said, no, he's, he's not really going to be very academic. Well, the hell were you lot? Because he's going to university. So well done. Um, let's hope he doesn't waste all of my money in the next three years. But I'm probably pretty sure he will. Um, so there we are, Isabel. He did wake up um, and he's going. So uh, we're all we're all good. <laughs> I'm so pleased for you, and so many parents up and down the country feel exactly what you're feeling. You know, it's a, it is a, a journey to use a bit of a cliche yeah. that those parents go on with our children, and you try not to invest too much in their exam results. And you know, and you tell yourself you that really there do, yeah, many bigger things in life, but still, it does matter. Um, and I, I'm, I can imagine how proud you feel mm. at this. Well, you know, I just really didn't want to have to sort of comfort him and say, I'm really sorry it didn't work out. And yes, there are plenty of ways that you can do that. And there are plenty of different routes that you can take. I'm just I'm just very really pleased. I'm just very happy for him. So I'm sorry for a moment of self-indulgence there. But, um, you know, let's talk about more uh, mundane matters, I suppose. Uh, The migrant crisis continues to lurch from one ridiculous situation to another. I see this morning uh, they've now decided to uh, basically charge four people smugglers uh, with manslaughter uh, because of that awful incident that happened at the weekend where six uh, migrants drowned in the English Channel. And um, the message for, and I know that they're innocent until proven guilty and all of that, but the four people who are charged, two of them from Iraq, two of them from Sudan, you know, just to suggest to people that perhaps not everyone who comes from these countries has got the best interests of people at heart. Well, it's interesting that the charges are actually being brought in France, not in the UK. Uh, I would love to see us actually doing something about any of this. Um, Also, I I think you'll be talking about this on your show tomorrow, but um, our Talk TV colleague Richard Tice has been out on the channel this morning um, and finding it very, very choppy out there. He certainly saw the border force vessels out there, and I'm sure he'll be telling you more about that later. He thinks they were probably bringing in some people back into Dover. I mean, this is just a daily trade. It is a deathly trade. It has devastating consequences for our country. And put very simply, nothing our government has done to date or is doing 
is working. That is the simple fact. The numbers are doubling. Uh, so the average vessel now has double the number of people in it than it did previously. And look, the only way this is going to stop, in my view, is to turn back the boats. I'm sorry, it may sound harsh, but we can do so safely. And if we routinely do that, then this trade will stop. It really will, because they'll find something else to make money from. If you can stop them making money so easily, they'll just pivot because they're very good at it. You know, I keep, say, I keep saying to people, you know, one of the most efficient and effective methods of doing business right now is to be a human trafficker across the channel because it is a brilliant business model. They don't get anything wrong. They don't care whether people die. They collect the money from them before they die. So they make sure they still put it all in the bank. You know, they've yeah. got they've obviously got a very good uh, supply uh, of dinghies that show up. I don't know if you heard the other day uh, that I that I spoke to a, a listener who'd been in Dunkirk and he watched as it sort of incredulously as a as a as a four by four uh, vehicle pulled up with three huge dinghies on the back on a trailer um took the trailer off walked it down to the uh, the shoreline and just as they did that a double-decker bus turned up full of migrants who were ready to get on those three boats so that's how organized they are they're obviously picking them up somewhere and bringing them in it's like a holiday business it's just almost basically a shuttle service yeah, it really is massively aided and abetted by all sorts of vested interests in this country who pretend that they're somehow doing something compassionate and continue to pretend that there are no so-called safe routes to right. come here, which is complete and utter nonsense. Right. We let in more than a million people last year by perfectly safe routes. And if you've got a thousand pounds to spend on a perilous journey, you've certainly got a few hundred quid to spend getting on a plane. Mm. Uh, so look, this is a, a complete and utter abject failure by this government they will pay the heaviest of political prices for it rishi sunak and his government have made zero impact in fact quite the reverse their policies have resulted in the trade only getting bigger and more evil and really affecting people in this country absolutely right and yesterday we found that some of the people coming over included pregnant women uh, and a couple of people in wheelchairs you know it literally is like uh, a sort of you know thompson holiday you might as well do a holiday brochure if they didn't have the internet um one final question for you just with your international hat on um two things prince mohammed bin salman to visit the uk five years after the khashoggi murder i think everybody understands that there is you know, real diplomatique, I suppose that you would call it, that you have to deal with Saudi Arabia. But there'll be many people who think that this is not a great step in the right direction. And secondly, uh, NATO suggesting or NATO aid suggesting that Ukraine might have to surrender some land and then they might get into NATO. Well, amazing things are happening in Saudi. I haven't actually ever been to Saudi, but I'd like to go. Um, and I, I never thought, cast back a few years ago, that I would say those words mm. because yes, there are deplorable, deplorable things that go on there as well. You know, the um, the treatment of women, the fact that there are still women stoned to death, you know, the, the, the um, summary executions and so on. But Saudi is modernizing and under MBS, uh, you know, there are real steps in the right uh, direction being made, extraordinary um, development going on there. The country is being remodeled. Um, you know, it's still a you know very hard line um, Muslim regime there, Islamic regime. 
Um, so, you know, you mess at your peril with the with the rules of behavior there. Um, but I think we've got to recognize that the, the leader there, MBS, is modernizing, is trying very hard. Um, and I think it's right to engage with them, even though at the same time recognizing that they have very different ways of uh, of carrying out their, their, their justice than we do. Um, on Ukraine, I mean, there's just no way um, the regime there, you know, the leader, uh, the leadership there is going to just give up part of the country um, in, 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 a, in a bid to settle this ongoing conflict. They, they could have done that a long time ago. Yeah, absolutely right. And, and NATO and Ukraine, any hope for that, do you think? Uh, for NATO, for Ukraine to join NATO, yeah. I, I think we would all like to see that. But clearly, um, you can't do that in the middle of a conflict. So um, it's really important that NATO continues to be strengthened as an organisation, um, that it continues to be fit for purpose in an age of very different types of threats. You know, what was actually quite surprising in a way is, you know, this very conventional, um, you know, land warfare. Uh, but so many of the threats that countries now face from hostile states are actually not, you know, in the form of um, boots on the ground. You know, they are things like the Salisbury poisoning. Mm. So um, NATO needs to continue to adapt. And, and the more it grows, the better. Sure. Isabel, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Isabel Oakeshott uh, with her take on the stories of the morning. Not least, of course, uh, the arrival of all the A-level results. If you've got um, kids, you'll be uh, absolutely thrilled or possibly not uh, with the results that they've got. Um, and perhaps you'll have some advice for them uh, as to where they go next. Where we go next is to find out what's going on in the world of travel. Simon Calder joins us to give us the lowdown on what's happening out there if you're going anywhere this weekend. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Got loads of you who want to talk to me, so I will come to you very, very shortly. Paul in Fife says, Mike, what made Britain great has been destroyed or removed. Our entire culture of Britishness is under attack. And if you do promote Britishness, you are seen as a racist or a xenophobe. The lionesses will be the next to feel the wrath of the white Brits bashers due to the near absence of black or ethnic players. We have given our country away. Our values are in the toilet. Great Britain, sorry. Uh, we're in the gutter, mate. Well, I was saying at the beginning of this show, I actually think that we once occasionally should remember that Great Britain is a great place. There are still great things to celebrate. There are still wonderful things to look forward to. And there are still fantastic things about this country. One of them uh, was Michael Parkinson, um, who died this morning, or we were, we were told he died at the age of 88, uh, shortly after the show started this morning. Um, he was probably one of the most famous faces of British television. Now, some of you might not be old enough to remember him, but I mean, he was very much part of my um, regular sort of Saturday night television um, appointments to watch when the BBC was one of the few channels that was even on and you would sort of put BBC News on at six o'clock and you'd kind of Saturday night it would be Morecambe and Wise, it would be uh, Match of the Day, it would be Michael Parkinson, you know, um, it was one of those just iconic things that everybody watched. Ali Ross is here, TV critic at The Sun. Uh, Ali, it's a very sad day. Michael Parkinson, a, a giant of a, of a man really, a, a fantastic interview, sort of interviewed everybody that ever was. Um, mm. And some of uh, the interviews went not quite as well as he thought they might do. Um, and that was kind of part of the charm, wasn't it? He, he took real chances. That, yeah. that was part of it. He had this pick of uh, the golden age of Hollywood, people like James Cagney. But he'd, 
you would also say to people like Rod Hull and Emu, come on. And I'm, right. I, I think he possibly regretted it for the rest of his life. <laughs> yes. It was famously was attacked. a magical piece of television. Yeah, it really was. And there were so many magical pieces. He had Muhammad Ali on more than once, I think. And Ali sort of got what Parkinson was and, and, and would kind of toy with him and, and sort of almost flirt with him in some ways. And, and it, was, it always made for a, a fascinating kind of joust to watch two, two people trying to sort of, you know, outdo one another. Yeah, same with, with, with Brian Clough as yeah. well. This, this was in an era before PR yes. had got hold of the television and media industry and effectively destroyed this strand of television. Mm. So huge stars like Jimmy Cagney would come on just because he wanted to chat. Yeah. He, had no, he had no film to promote. He'd been long retired by that point. But he had a story to tell about the golden era of Hollywood and yeah. how this kid from the East Coast with nothing had, had, had become a huge star. And Parky was the perfect venue to do it because he was an interviewer who was capable of listening. He would let them, he was quite happy to pay, play second fiddle to these people because he, he knew he was, and that was the, the mark of a great interviewer. Yeah, absolutely right. And he always was good at, and, and for me, all good interviewers get good stories out of people, you know, because that's part of the skill, isn't it? Because everyone, I mean, I found this incredibly um, sort of, I wouldn't say easy to do, but so many people have got stories, but nobody asks them for them. And Parkinson's no. one of those guys who kind of managed to get people like Ali um, and maybe, um, you know, the likes of, you know, Elton John. And, and I remember one of the Elton John interviews where he said, you know, what about this story, Elton, about you spending... Um, Two hundred fifty thousand pounds on flowers, you know, which we later found out was something completely different. But he said, "I just really like flowers," and it was just one of those great moments where you kind of went, yeah, well, yeah. "All right," and and he made people sort of quite likable, didn't he? The thing about Parky was, and I'll say this as a, a mark of professional pride, he was with the tabloids and the Daily Express in Manchester. Yeah. So he'd come up from the age of sixteen when his dad had put him off becoming a miner. He became a journalist, and the training stood him in excellent yes. stead. Yes. He was also, and I think this will be his, his greatest achievement, was the discovery. He took chances, as we said. He put Billy Connolly in Scotland, and overnight he became a superstar across the whole of Britain and then ultimately the world. And he, he didn't just change Billy Connolly's life. Yeah. I think he changed the whole history of comedy. Yeah. He changed stand-up. It's a, it's a remarkable legacy for the moment. It really is. And it kind of became the show, as I was saying. I mean, I don't know if you... You're probably possibly a little bit younger than me. Most people are. Um, but Saturday night was very much a family in front of the television night, wasn't it? You know, I remember growing yeah. up. When I was sort of in, you know, early 70s, mid-70s, we would just sit there glued to the television. You know, you'd be watching yeah, yeah. Morecambe and Wise. You'd, I can't remember if Parkinson was on before Match of the Day. I think it was. Um, and he'd watch Parkinson, then Match of the Day would be on. And it was just a kind of a very much of a, of a tradition. It was a rite of passage mm. as well. It marks, it, it was like your bar mitzvah when yeah. you were allowed to stay up and become a man because you were old enough to watch Parkinson, who some weeks would just have a hypnotist on. Right. Incredible. It was, it was more left field than we remember. Yes. That. Yeah, and of course, who can and who can forget the Meg Ryan interview? You know, where she got very testy, um, and, and it was one of the most awkward pieces of television of all time. But it was kind of fascinating at the same time. I think Parky would possibly have been one of the first to admit he was better at interviewing men than he was women. Yes, 
because he he fancied quite a lot of the female guests on the show. <laughs> I mean, he, 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 he sort of he did let himself down a bit with Meg Ryan, didn't he? Uh, he? He didn't have a plan B, is what I'd say. Right. So if she did, if a beautiful woman doesn't flirt with him, he, he wasn't quite sure where to take it after right. that. And as you well know, Mike, a lot of the people. We, we see one version of them on screen and it's a very, very different version in real life. Yes. They can be prickly, awkward customers. Uh, she wasn't prepared to play ball with them. No. So, and, and, and I mean, funnily enough, it was at that moment that I thought maybe this is where he has to stop doing it, perhaps. Yeah. Because he hasn't quite moved, you know, with, with what's going on around him. I think it was the right time to go, mm. quite. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but the, the, the legacy is more than secure. I think so. And then he sort of came back latterly, didn't he, with ITV, but that wasn't quite the same. He wasn't quite the same guy. Had a bit of a spat mm. with Piers Morgan, I seem to remember, uh, as most people do from time to time. Um, that I've got doesn't a... make him a bad person. Mark. No, listen, I would absolutely agree with that. Uh, Chris says, uh, uh, the declining Great Britain has summed up uh, by what's happened today. Michael Parkinson to the one show. That's how far we have fallen. Well, I mean, you could yeah. say that the, the decline of the BBC uh, is can now complete. I do, I, I do remember putting just in my collar. I, mean, I, I just resorted to pictures. I had David Niven on Parkinson in 1975 and a member of the EastEnders cast in about 2005, Jack Goodling. I thought, well, this is where we're at. <laughs> Dave, David Niven, one of the great raconteurs and war hero yeah. and Hollywood giant and a member of a soap opera juggling and I think uh, the pictures didn't get it wasn't him that got small it was the pictures dark. yes yes exactly right but you know um, a sad day a great man a great chat show host um, in the sort of style of the American the great American chat show host really like Johnny Carson um, and, and even Jay Leno I suppose yeah a pioneer who let's face it with, with that Barnsley accent was a very new thing to experience on television yeah uh, in that day and he paved the way for others he did Ali good to see you thanks very much indeed Ali Ross TV critic at The Sun uh, uh, on the death of Michael Parkinson at the age of 88 a giant uh, of television a man who strode uh, the BBC when the BBC was worth something that was a while ago this is Talk TV Edgy talk, plain talk, unrivaled talk, Mike Graham. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The independent republic of Mike Graham. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We are very close to the end of yet another week. If you've been waiting uh, and waiting and waiting this morning, you finally got the answer uh, to the question, uh, am I going to go to university? Uh, an awful lot of kids waking up this morning and opening up uh, a letter or indeed just going online to find out how they did in their A-levels. And uh, if you happen to be getting uh, the results that you wanted, you'll be going. Uh, but what I would say to you is if you are not happy with what you got and if you are not maybe able to go to university that is not by any means the end of the world uh, Tom Skinner is in with me this morning uh, he's a guy who got two GCSEs uh, after getting expelled from school more times than he's had hot dinners uh, he's had a very successful life ever since and he's done okay and there are different methods of getting there uh, other than actually going to university uh, the story that we've been covering this morning of course uh, surrounding the death of Michael Parkinson a man who interviewed everybody uh, from Muhammad Ali to Miss Piggy uh, and with a few sort of rock 
rock stars in between, David Bowie, Billy Connolly. Uh, he interviewed some amazing stars, uh, and he was really very much the voice of the BBC way back when. when- hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The BBC was actually decent. And when the BBC was not completely and utterly useless, they've actually put a tweet out today from Radio 4 asking people why they can tell them, if they can tell them, why they've stopped listening. I mean, anybody with a brain at the BBC clearly hasn't been listening to the output because it's very clear why people have stopped listening to BBC Radio 4 because it's crap. That's why. Easy. So there's your answer. You don't have to do a study. You don't have to do a consultation. You don't have to ask anybody. You can just ask me and I'll tell you. It's rubbish. Simple. Let's talk to Di Davis, former head of Royal Protection, of course, former police uh, officer as well. Uh, Di, a very good morning to you. Very well. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. The only degree I've got is of life. Yes, and that's the most, the most important degree that you can have. And I, I tell many people, I tell my own kids, you know, I was nervous this morning because my own son was waiting for his A-level results and he's done very well. Um, oh, he's done well enough to get into the college he wants to go to, so I'm very happy for him. But I said to him, you know, look, if it doesn't work out, there are many different paths you can take to go through life in various different ways. And I think for many of us, they've spent too long recently convincing young people that they must go to university they must i mean the police is a good example uh, you must get a degree to become a police officer you must get a degree to become a nurse absolute uh, tosh you don't need to you're much better off learning on the job and i'm happy to say that now there are more apprenticeships available to kids uh, where they can actually go and learn a trade or learn on the job instead of messing about for three years and getting into loads of debt i totally agree with you well, it's very good to find you agreeing with me. I mean, most people do because I talk common sense. Let's talk about knife crime. There's some stats out today, um, Di, from the Home Office. Um, the criminal justice system apparently uh, has sent fewer people to prison over knife crime and offensive weapon offences uh, in the year from 2022 March to 2023 uh, March. The proportion of offenders receiving an immediate custodial sentence has fallen to just 30%, which I think is a mistake. Um, they're saying that the number of offences is actually down, but I wonder whether that's to do more with the way that they record them rather than the actual number of offences, because we also know that something like 70% of offences are committed by first-time offenders. Well, you're quite right. And uh, if you think the average sentence uh, first-timers and even sometimes second-timers mm. is 7.8 months, uh, that is absolutely no deterrent to some of these feral youth no. uh, who, whose mates already are in prison or coming in and out of prison because we are so lax in this country. You know, 45,000 uh, offences of carrying a knife or using a knife, as far as I'm aware, and trying to make sense of some of the statistics. I've only just had five minutes to look them up, but it's just mind-boggling how much crime is committed by those using knives. And the average age is under 20. That is alarming yeah. because they have show no fear of our criminal justice system. And is it surprising when two-thirds of them 
don't go to prison. Yeah. It, it just beggars belief, frankly. Exactly. I mean, this is the trouble with crime in general, though, Di, isn't it, at the moment? Because most people who commit what you might regard as relatively low-level crime, like these kids steaming in and out of Oxford Street shops and just nicking stuff, shoplifting all over the place has gone up massively. Um, you know, burglary, car theft, bike theft... You know, what is, I, I, I guess the police must regard as victimless crime, but it, which it isn't, um, is going up hugely and massively. And I mean, nowadays, if I'm walking around in London, I would be very surprised if I don't at least see one um, sort of attempted snatch of a phone or an attempted snatch of a handbag. And, and you don't really go up against people anymore because you don't know if they've got a knife. Well, you're quite right. And again, how often... I don't come to London very often, thank goodness, these days. How often do you actually see a police man or woman actually patrolling yeah. the beat? Hardly when ever. When I joined in the early, late 60s, 70s, there were about 30 of us. Mm. And we were all posted to a small mine, was Kensington and Earl's Court. And you walked your beat and right. you were a deterrent. There appears to be no deterrent. And if you catch these people at the moment, the likelihood of it going to court, taking months to get there in the first place, is nonsensical. As a young sergeant inspector, I would make the decision yeah. who went to court, not the CPS, and off they would go the very next day. Mm. So you either remanded them in custody if you felt they were a danger, but now even spies get bail, I'm told. You couldn't make it up. No, you really couldn't. And I mean, the funny thing is now is that I speak to former detectives and former police officers like yourself, and they say, you know, we used to take a pride in, in arresting people, and maybe in, in any given day you'd, you'd chalk up about 10 arrests. There are people now in the police who don't arrest anyone from one, one day at the beginning of the week to the end of the week. They don't actually arrest anyone at all. Well, the statistics are just appalling, and you can do everything with statistics, but the average conviction rate now is about 3 to 5%. Yeah. So, in other words, 95% of offenders with most crime, even the more serious ones, get away with it. Uh, I just despair, and I, most of the people I joined with and, and subsequently, they despair as well. What is going wrong? If you ran a business in this kind of productivity, you'd be sacked. I, I, I just despair, yeah. and I'm sorry I despair every time I come on your programme, but it seems <laughs> to get progressively worse. Well, it does, because it won't surprise you at all. Uh, to when you look at these figures, because technically speaking, we're, we're being told, and I don't believe it for a second, uh, that the numbers of knife crime incidents have gone down. But then they say, uh, well, of course, figures for Q2 and Q3 of 2022 might also have been impacted by industrial action taken by the Criminal Bar Association. So because they were on strike, actually, they weren't able to tick enough boxes and they weren't able to take enough cases through the courts. So that may well actually be the determining reason why we're being told that knife crime is down. And of course, that means it isn't down, is it? No, of course it isn't. And I'd like if you get a minister on your programme, ask them, do you think it's satisfactory that in this day and age, we allow young feral youths to go around stabbing each other? I think there were nearly 300 homicides last year uh. caused through knife crimes. Do you think that's acceptable in a democracy yes. like ours? Well, I can tell you what they'll say, because the last time I had a minister on uh, who had anything to do with police and crime, he was busy trying to convince me that crime rates were going down. And I said, sorry, I'm, I mean, and that is not my experience. That is not anybody's experience in terms of just walking around and seeing what's going on and knowing that I speak to at least four people a day now who, if it, if it hasn't happened to them, has happened to somebody they know who's had their phone nicked. 
Well, ab absolutely. And if you ask victims of burglary, are we still getting any kind of satisfaction from when we do get a visit mm. or we do, do get anything? But, you know, the whole structure seems wholly out of kilter, yeah. i.e. it takes months to get people to court. When they are in court, the sentences, frankly, are ludicrous in many cases. We really have got to have, I think, a royal commission in this country just to into the criminal justice system. Yeah. Everybody blames money, but you know there are, there are more police officers now in this country than whenever I joined 50 years yeah. ago. That's for sure. Yeah. And not only that, they don't mention they're supported by civilian backup, thousands of them. Yeah. We didn't have that in my day, so somebody isn't doing their job very well. And as I repeatedly said, some of our chief constables I would sack tomorrow. Yeah. Well, I'm mean, unfortunately, you know, looking around the country, all of the different various constabularies that exist, none of them are really standing out for me as uh, constabularies actually doing what it says on the tin, i.e. keeping the community safe and locking up the bad guys. I mean, that's the job, isn't it? Well, you would say so and I would say so. But, you know, we've got 43 little barons running our police forces in England and Wales. That is nonsensical. We've got a rank structure that keeps back to the Victorian days. Mm. Something needs to change, and what needs to change most is good, effective leadership. There are one or two, but sadly they're far and far between, because like selects like, woke selects like, and that's what's gone wrong in mm. this country, I think. And one of the things that people ask me quite often is, how is it possible to be able to buy these ridiculously... Um, vicious knives you know these kind of stanley knives which obviously are used for other things we've got you know those, those sort of rambo knives with the serrated edges you've got machetes that you can buy you know how is it possible that that cannot be something that can be stopped from being sold well i fought very hard to stop firearms being sold to the level it was back uh, in the early 90s and we succeeded in some ways in restricting the number of people who could have firearms I say again, we should restrict these knives. There is no legitimate purpose for the vast majority of us to have any kind of knife other than a kitchen knife. But yeah. the problem is you can't ban all knives. And, and unfortunately, quite often you will find the youngsters will take out bread knives, kitchen knives and sharpened implements. It is a real problem. And until we give sentences of four years for those who carry knives, i.e., Four years, big notices in wherever parts of the country identified, like London, West Midlands and other places. You carry a knife, lovely boy, and you are going to prison for four years. No ifs, no half sentences. Perhaps then the message will get through. And the same way with drug suppliers, you supply drugs to anyone. And those who take it, those who create the market, the lovely uh, middle classes, you take it, you get caught and you're going to join your dealers in prison. Mm. Until we get that kind of attitude in this country, we will continue to have. And drugs and knives have always been, since I've been a police officer, uh, co-bedfellows, if you like. We've yes. got to get a grip. And our current useless bunch of politicians on every side, every side, not just this lot, the other lot as well, until they get a grip, we will have continually, continually people suffering uh, in this country.
Absolutely right. Di, thank you very much indeed. Di Davis, former head of Royal Protection there, uh, with a word to the wise. Don't believe everything you read. In this case, uh, the suggestion that knife crime appears to be going down, according to some official figures uh, from the Department of Justice. I'm not sure that they actually are telling the real story. And I think for those of you who understand what's going on in this country, you know uh, that they're not telling the real story. And part of it might be that because the barristers were on strike, they didn't actually produce enough cases through the courts. And that may be while they're down. Um, Ray says this. I'm so sad to hear of the passing of Sir Michael Parkinson. I was his warm-up man for many years at both the BBC and ITV. During my time, I've had the pleasure of working on so many different types of shows with so many presenters. And the word legend is often used. But believe me when I tell you that not only was Sir Michael a total perfectionist and a professional in every way, he just happened to be one of the nicest people you could ever wish to meet. A true gentleman. And I shall miss him. Ray, thank you very much indeed for that. Uh, we might try and get you on the show later on. Uh, coming up, though, uh, we are going to be talking some more um, about Michael Parkinson, of course. Uh, we'll bring you more tributes to him throughout the course of the show and throughout the course of the day here on Talk TV. Online on DAB+, Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, one from Frankie says, Mike, I never forget the Parkinson interview with Billy Connolly when Billy said all those feminists with their shaven heads, boiler suits and bother boots marching about with placards and screaming, men, stop treating us women as sex objects. Politically incorrect. You couldn't get away with it now. So funny. Well, I mean, Michael Parkinson was often accused of being quite sexist. As I say, um, when we were talking to Ali Ross there, we can remember that interview he did with Meg Ryan. And Ali said, you know, the thing about Parkinson was that he rather fancied most of the women that he had on his show, particularly the Hollywood stars. Uh, and he would flirt with them unmercifully. I mean, I think I remember him having Jane Fonda on. I mean, almost any woman. I think he had Madonna on. Almost any woman you can think of that was a star over the course of, uh, you know, the last sort of 50 years. He had them on at some point or other. Um, and most of the time he was brilliant. Occasionally, he would slip into a sort of slightly more sardonic um, sp way of speaking. And occasionally he would get a bit sarcastic with people. And occasionally you could tell that there was a bit of tension in the room. But that was what kind of made it all the more compelling. You know, um, Tony says this. We only have a thousand prison places left. The CPS are desperate not to imprison criminals. We need to build more prisons. Well, that's another story altogether. We'll get to that. Uh, we'll talk about that. But let's talk now to Mark Wogan, uh, who knows a thing or two about the showbiz world, uh, son of Terry Wogan, of course. Uh, Mark, uh, a very, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Lovely to see you. Lovely to How see you, you again. Yes, slightly different circumstances from the last time, but uh, nice to see you. Um, <laughs> let's not go into that. Let's not go into that, no. Uh, Michael <laughs> Parkinson, I mean, you, you, people say it a lot, but I mean, he was a one-off, wasn't he? You won't see people like that again. And he, and he was in the business at a time when when we were sort of I suppose, a, a chat show host was sort of at the centre of the world. He seemed like he interviewed everyone. He did. And yeah, I don't think the industry as it is now and media how it is now would allow you to uh, create that kind of career anymore. Mm. Uh, he was a one off. He was he was very uncompromising in his style uh very different to dad uh from the respect that he uh he came from a journalistic background yeah um but you know deeply professional and deeply skilled at what he did yes i mean your dad was more friendly as an interviewer i would say i mean i don't think parkinson set out to annoy people but i think he just he just did a little bit he was he was dad was far more relaxed and, yeah you know people always drew comparisons between the two but they were very different people but they they did have a genuine mutual respect for each other hmm. 
And do you think that, you know, of all of the things that Parkinson did, if you were to ask him, you know, um, what he was perhaps most proud of, we might all be surprised because it probably wouldn't be the Muhammad Ali interview or maybe the Rod Hull moment. It would probably be something completely obscure because I knew people actually who had grown up, not grown up necessarily with him, but who had been, who had worked with him when he was a journalist, you know, who had come from Yorkshire and that kind of, you know, very, you know, matter of fact way of speaking, a very matter of fact way of being. Um, and he loved his cricket and all of that, you know. Um, and I wonder whether his, his own kind of summation of his finest moment would be very different to what we might think. Uh, I would imagine with Michael, it was something to do with cricket. Yeah. Because yeah. he was, he was, a, he was passionate. He was about a fanatic, wasn't he? Yeah. And very knowledgeable about it with a lot of the sports programming he did and, mm. and, and, and the uh, columns that he had in newspapers around sport, you know, he was, ve- and, and that's, that was similar with dad. Dad was also very passionate about sport and, yeah. and, um, showed a great interest and love for it. And and I think both of them shared that uh, the fact that they relaxed watching sport. And interestingly enough, I've just seen this, it says in a 2006 poll of the most shocking TV chat show moments, Parkinson's spat with Meg Ryan came third behind Grace Jones slapping Russell Harty. And you'll be pleased to hear this. Um, David Icke pronouncing himself as a son of Godhead uh, to your father, <laughs> yes, I think I think uh, Michael said that his worst interview ever was Meg Ryan, and I think and it was actually, da- yeah. And uh, Dad's personal one was Anne Bancroft. Was it? What who, went wrong there? Yeah. Because I don't, I mean, well, I, I don't really remember that one. <laughs> well, she came on Wogan, and I don't think her uh, PR people had told her that it was live, right? And she sat on the sofa, terrified and couldn't speak. And it was it was about a sort of two minute monosyllabic response to every question. Right. And then Dad wound it up and got the next guest out. <laughs> I mean, that's the great thing about live television, isn't it? You never know what's actually going to happen. Um, and it's amazing to and me. He, that he loved that. That Dad preferred live to anything else. Yeah, no, I'm the same. Uh, you know, he he always said he always said it's fun when it goes wrong. Yes, That's when it's exciting. and also you then own it when it goes wrong as well. You know, when somebody yeah. was, was reminding me just the other day of there's a great uh, news broadcast that went out, I think something like 1981 or something like that, where you can it's, it's somehow for some reason you can hear all the instructions coming from the director in the gallery where they can't find things and you know there's no there's no page 33 there's you know there's no film for this there's, what are we doing next and and it all ends up just turning into complete chaos. It's brilliant, you know. <laughs> and, da- and of course, uh, Dad was famous for never rehearsing. Yes. Ever. Well, he had a particular style that was that was brilliant, though, wasn't it? I mean, it was literally just nobody else could do it like that. He walked in, mm. got on with it. That was it. Yeah. But they very throughout their career with the chat thing, they sort of gently tag teamed each other. So uh, you know, as as that first incumbent of Parkinson ended, yeah. Wogan started, yes. and then as Wogan ended. Parkinson started yes. and then halfway through the run I think Michael took it over to ITV yeah so was there um, ever a but, kind of a head-to-head thing going on where one would try and get the interview before the other no I don't think they ever sort of bothered crossing over there was there was never crossing over and they, they knew each other and uh, they respected each other and I think you know when when we were growing up we all lived in the same road did you yeah we all lived in this road called Fishery Road in Bray right and uh I think there was uh, the odd 
drink taken together at the Heinz Head pub in Bray. Right. Very over nice. The years. It's the TV road, isn't it? I mean, that's kind of yeah. It was. So it was. TV, it was the TV road. I don't. Think, it was so TV. I don't know if it's. You like had that everyone anymore. living. No, no. You had everyone <laughs> living on the same road. You had Michael Parkinson, Frank Boff, right. uh, Billy Connolly, one of the three degrees, and Diana Dawes and Marion Montgomery Brilliant. all on the same road. <laughs> Tremendous. I think they started running tours. Yeah. They started running tours. It is. I think that's when dad moved out. Right. But I think the the one thing, the one very key similarity between them both is they didn't do what they did to be famous. Right. They did it because they loved doing. Yeah. You know, fame was a sort of byproduct of of what they did. Right. And and as a result, the one thing they definitively shared was a dislike of reality tv yes i mean this is the thing and also funnily enough i think you know we sort of all mourn the loss of 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 these kinds of television characters you know your father was was a one-off as was michael parkinson and i think as i say your your dad was probably slightly more likable by most people's standards but because parkinson could be a bit edgy and a bit kind of you know um intrusive at least at least at least michael was true to himself but he was he yeah he didn't but, he didn't bend for anybody no and there's nothing like that and i know i don't want to sound like some boring old fart who just goes it's not like it was but it isn't like it was you know there isn't anything i was saying earlier on to ali ross you know saturday night in my house when i was growing up in the sort of early 70s to, to late 70s you know saturday night were you sat in front of the tv with your parents until you yeah. till i was 16 i started going out with, with girls that was that was my life, and just you know, Saturday night. You were always a late developer, though, Mike. I was. It's true. It's very true. Walking yeah. uh, and Wise, you know, match of the day, Parkinson. It was brilliant. You know, now there's nothing yeah. that keeps me in on Saturday night other than my laziness and and my, <laughs> you know, disinterest in actually going anywhere. <laughs> I think it's the same. It's the same for all of us. Now we're at a certain age, yeah. but you know, as I said at the beginning, I don't think the way media is, you know set up now it allows careers like that to develop anymore yeah. you yeah. wouldn't get you wouldn't get the time or space to develop a career like that anymore. no and i mean now the sort of the big names <clears throat> are, are doing weird and other th- you know it's like you know it's, it's, it's david attenborough and it's you know news readers who are the big names as opposed to people who actually are very skilled as as both of the, the men we're talking about were at getting stuff out of people and i'd say and, and not being you know michael was not it was it was harder it was a slightly harder interview because he wasn't afraid to ask those questions Mm. that others wouldn't i mean you know you had david frost who would ask any question of anybody um and that always led to some interesting interviews and um dad had a you know as we say he had a more gentle um style that allowed people to be be how they wanted right. to be but he the made show. them relaxed didn't he which i think was his yeah. great skill because and, yeah. and he probably didn't even know how he did that he just did it yeah but also the 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 structure of wogan was very different to parkinson it was it, it was a shorter show you had less time with the guests and that that was what always frustrated him about wogan was because it was live you know you'd have a major star on you were having an interesting interview and you had to cut them short because there was somebody coming on who who might have won a a, a cycling contest and yeah. it wasn't as important and you know so there was always that frustration right. whereas michael if he had a particular guest would change the structure of the show and and dedicate the whole show to them mm. yeah 
absolutely. Well, it'll be sadly missed. I mean, everything yeah. has to come to an end, I guess, and you can't pretend that it would yeah. be the same if he was still doing it now. Maybe it wouldn't be any good. But listen, appreciate your time, Mark. Thank you very much indeed. Mark Wogan there uh, with his appreciation of Michael Parkinson. Fascinating, isn't it, that they all lived in the same road? That's a great anecdote, that. Uh, and Diamond, OBE, says this. I worked with uh, Michael at TVAM and I loved him. He taught the world to interview with fun, integrity and no fawning. I'm proud to have known and worked with him. I send all my love and deepest sympathies to his family and especially Mary, uh, his wife. Uh, we'll bring you more uh, appreciation of Michael Parkinson as well as your calls. This is Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Much more to do between now and one o'clock. Just about 25 minutes to go. Uh, Ian Collins is going to be here, of course. And lots, lots more. Jake Berry in from three o'clock. Vanessa Feltz from five. And then, of course, Jeremy Carl back at seven. And then uh, it's Piers Morgan Uncensored. And then it's the talk with us uh, right here. Uh, myself and Ian Collins are going to be on that from 9pm. Uh, let's talk now to Sharon Davis, Olympic medalist, of course, author of Unfair Play, The Battle for Women's Sport. Um, I'm sure, Sharon, you're very uh, excited, as many people are, to see the old uh, Lionesses getting into the final down under. Absolutely. Go you know. Lionesses. And you know what? It's very exciting. Yeah, and we were talking last night about it on the talk, and Isabel Oakeshott and I were discussing it, and she was saying, you know, she's got two daughters, and, you know, what a great thing to see female athletes succeeding at something which yeah. is, you know, something they can call their own and to give yeah. a kind of role model um, idea to, to young women who might want to get into sport. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's see it and then you can be it, isn't it? You know, yeah. That's the whole point, you know. And we want it be, to be consistent because obviously we watched the girls last year and they did an amazing job at the Euros and now they're doing incredible things at the World Cup and we need to see it in between. But we also do need to see other sports because not every little girl wants to be a footballer. Some of them right. might want to be swimmers or badminton players or right. cyclists. Yes. <laughs> So, you know, we need to make sure that we get the girls on the television being successful. And they are incredibly successful. Look how successful we are at the Olympics. Mm. You know, we have wonderful athletes in this country, very much supported by lottery, which yeah. is you guys who buy your tickets. Yes, absolutely right. So, I mean, there's been some struggles. I mean, I, I, I feel, I don't know whether you feel the same way, that in sport, it's been very much a kind of a lightning rod in a way for the whole trans debate, hasn't it? Because many sporting bodies have now taken the view that actually, you know, you can't have you know biological females competing with trans women it just doesn't work we saw that yeah. ridiculous situation in the the powerlifting um i think it was over in canada um which yeah. was just a joke and i mean not only did the person who won it um then you know go on to to you know to, he won it by something like 200 pounds heavier it was the thing that he lifted up but he then went on to rubbish women weightlifters to say that they were all yeah. useless and that was why he won and you're thinking yeah well this is not what anybody wants to see is it I know. And it's a disgraceful thing to say. You know, yeah. the difference at Olympic level between male and female performance is 30%. Yeah. So that trans identifying, identifying male is a very poor, mediocre male weightlifter. Mm. To then disrespect female weightlifters who spent 10, 15 years of their life. You know, we have a different instrument, a different body. I've yeah. just come back from the gym. I know damn well <laughs> that we can only do so much because we just don't have the same sort of biomechanics. Mm. We don't have the testosterone levels. You know, we don't have the same VO2 max ranges, all those different things that make an absolutely massive difference in sport. And it's fantastic to see the lionesses. But at the moment, the FA in, in the UK and England, there's still 50 trans-identifying males that are playing football, taking places away from young girls. And a lot of those are goalies because obviously being more explosive, being taller, having longing arms, having bigger hands, yeah. that's all a really big advantage right. when you're going to be in a goal. Right. So, well, the FA doesn't have a policy on whether that's... Not yet. Right. So... so 
So, because yeah. I mean, swimming certainly does, doesn't it? Swimming it was does. one of the first. Swimming, track and field, yeah. um, rowing in the UK does. We're hoping that, that the World Federation does soon. Uh, triathlon in the UK does. I mean, mm. in the UK, we're doing, you know, we're doing pretty well. Track and field, obviously, very important as well, does. Um, and things like uh, rugby, you know, yeah. rugby again were one of the early ones because we know that we you massively increase the risk of serious right. damage and injury, and it will be a young girl that ends up with a life changing, um, you know, accident, yeah. broken neck, and worse. So yeah. yeah, really important. Safety comes first. Fairness is second, and then we find ways to be inclusive, which we can do. Well, exactly. Also, you're not asking for things to be prevented from happening you're just saying as the as the swimming uh, organizations are saying uh, have an open category there's going to be one in berlin yeah. um i don't see any problem with that i don't see why anyone would ever say oh that's not fair well because it's per perfectly fair isn't it yeah absolutely i think at the moment we still haven't decided what an open category looks like for uh. me i would rather there was a female category and then there was an open category and the open category then was you know like it is for golf and many other things where every, anyone can go in it that, that, that's good enough mm. um otherwise what happens is that we're going to be giving awards and trophies away to what what will be mediocre athletes yeah. you know the whole non-binary thing is just ridiculous you know we have non-binary athletes winning five thousand pounds all over america at the moment yeah. doing times that you know that the first 80 in the men's race are going faster and the first 10 in the women's race are going faster so I don't know that we should be rewarding mediocrity. At the right. end of the day, we still only have a male or a female body to work with. There isn't a third sex. You right. know, there, there is no such thing as a hermaphrodite. So at the end of the day, I, I, I don't really understand why we can't just work with the biological sex that we've got. Um, the, you, you talk about the, the word aquatics, you know, very bravely have done the right thing, which is fantastic. At the moment, they're still sort of trialling. And so our World Cup events start in Berlin in October. Right. And what they're going to do is have an event which will be 50s and 100s. And so it will be really interesting to see what that actually means. And so, know, have, have they given, so have they given out a, a sort of description of who qualifies for the open category then or not? Well, at the moment, it's just kind of anyone that fancies going in there. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. What you will find is that trans-identifying females... And non-binary identifying females will still opt to race with the females because they won't want to race males. Right. They won't beat them. So, you know, it's, it's going to be really interesting to see how it all pans out, which is why I come back to going female classification, open classification, and then you will get the best male and the best female winning those two races, right. which is really where we should be. Which is kind of where you want to be. And what about the other sports then? I mean, football you've mentioned already. I mean, why, yeah. why, why do you think they're lagging behind so much? ECB, really bad. I mean, you know, cricket, they self-identify. So you can literally turn up today and go, today I feel like a woman and I'm going to represent Kent and, yeah. play, and play cricket. Tomorrow I'm going to feel like a man and I'm not going to bother. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I made a joke yesterday. Mad. That's how bad cricket is at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I'm, I made a joke you know, yesterday. Well, I said, well, all his, over the place. Yeah, I made a joke yesterday about, um, about Harry Kane. I said, well, here's what we do, you know, in order to make sure that the Lionesses win. Send Harry Kane down to Australia. Tell, say, say his name's Harriet, put him in a dress uh, and say he wants to play centre forward. He identifies as a woman this week. And I mean, that's effectively what people are doing. Yeah, I know. Well, we know that males kick nearly 100% harder than females. Um, you know, we, we, we know all the biology. You know, it's, it's just, it, we know that women, for example, have massive 
a larger risk of ACL injuries. Yeah. In fact, the number of English you know, team members that are out at the moment, I think it's five or six times as many ACL knee injuries women get. And this is because of what's called the Q angle, which is our angle between our hips and our knees. Yeah. And obviously for women, we have childbearing hips. Yeah. So, and we have much more flexible ligaments. Um, you know, so there's lots of, lots of differences, which makes a difference to performance. Right. And we've fought so hard Mike to get equality and we still don't have it and we still got lots to do right. you know in the UK there's a thousand women that earn their living from sport there's 11,000 men wow and so we only have a tiny piece of the cake already yeah. you know and now being expected to move over for mediocre males that identify as something that they're physically not mm. um is really frustrating and do you think many of them are driven simply by money because they think they can win money or <sighs> what, what do you think I, it's about I don't know what it's about. I mean, I've got lots of trans friends, actually, and most of those would, would, wouldn't dream of taking prizes and awards and places away from, from females. They just want to get on and live their lives peacefully, you know, safely, as they absolutely should be able to do. Mm. So I think there's a certain amount of narcissism that's involved in wanting to get on a bike and steal prizes away from, you know, from right. female or turn up and identify at a park run on a Sunday and start taking all the women's records, which is right. what's happening every weekend at the moment. Is this you know, podium, I, podium envy then or something? Yeah, I just think it's attention envy mm. in a way. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's not helpful. Your book is out, Unfair Play, The Battle for Women's Sports. Um, is that something that you're particularly proud of? I am. We worked really hard. Myself and Craig. Craig is a, a writer, a sports writer for the Times. It took mm. us a year. We had to be very factually accurate. We wanted to put all the science in there. We wanted to to get rid of all the gotchas. Explain, you know, the difference between male and female performance and the history, and obviously the battle that women have had for years, really, to get equality. Mm. I mean, Baron Pierre de Coubertin, the, the great father of the, the modern Olympic Games, did everything in his power to keep women out of the Olympic Games. Um, and we only really got parity in numbers at the last Olympics. When mm. I competed in 1980 and won my medal, there were four times as many men as there were females. Wow. And we still don't have as many women sitting on sports committees or running sports. Mm. You know, that's, that's an important move as well. I saw Seb this morning, actually, Seb Coe. Yeah proudly said that world athletics have got nearly half and half now and and that's you know that's the way it should be because right. they're representing sports where they have a men and women you know on the track yeah. and so well we someone need... was reminding me last night i think there was 50 years ago or so that the fa banned women from playing football yeah yeah they did right after the, the first world war so during the first world war women were playing to full full capacity stadiums up to fifty-five thousand, the biggest stadiums around during the first world war yeah. and Immediately after the war, the FA banned women footballers for 50 years. Unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And now look where they are. Yeah, so. they're doing good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you've come a long way, baby. It used to be the advert in America for those American cigarettes, come what they've called. Absolutely. And, and I think we have to be sensible. You know, I'm not someone that's going to turn around and say, right, the best female footballer at the moment should be played the same as Messi. You know, I mean, right. let's... You have to have commercial common sense in all of this. Right. However, it's part of the man's, the men's game. It's part of the FA to help to build women's sport and women's success and women's opportunity. Sadly, only only something like fourteen percent of fourteen to fifteen year olds girls do enough physical activity. Mm. So, it, you know, we we need to try to to get them to understand that being active and doing lots of different sports and and being outdoors and getting off their blooming smartphones is really good for their <laughs> mental health as well as their their yes. physical. 
Yeah, well, if only. Let's see if we can get that to happen. Great to talk to you, Sharon. Thank you very much indeed. The book's called Unfair Play, The Battle for Women's Sport. And Sharon has, has fought a, ma a massively, incredibly important battle uh, to make sure that women are properly represented in sport and also are not kind of sidelined uh, by a trend that currently seems to be happening in some sports. Uh, and many of them, like swimming, have got it right. They've had an open category invented so that people uh, who are trans can go into a different category rather than swimming against women. Surely that makes sense, doesn't it? This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.